Hello, and welcome to the Crime Shark Podcast. I'm your host, Baby Shark. This is my fourth episode, and I really wished I had gotten this out a week earlier on Mother's Day, because today I want to talk to you about none other than Diane Downs. Remember her? Well, if you don't, I'm about to tell you all about her. And if you do, well, you can listen anyway, because why not? Diane Downs, born as Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson, was born August 7th, 1955. What up to my fellow Leo? I keep seeing this post about serial killers and their horoscope signs, none of which are Leos. It's mostly Virgos and Geminis with a few Sagittarius and Pisces. I don't know what that says about Leos. Probably nothing. Anyway, Downs was born in Phoenix, Arizona. Her parents, Wesley and Willa Dean Fredrickson, were described as Danish and English-American. Now, I think Willa Dean is an A-plus name. You don't meet a lot of people named Willa Dean anymore. Diane was the oldest of four children. The Fredricksons maintained a fairly conservative household, It wasn't until her teenage years that Diane kind of rebelled and lashed out. At 14, she dropped her first name, Elizabeth, and began to go by just Diane. She attended and graduated from Moon Valley High School in Phoenix, where she was smart but sort of lacked social skills and didn't really fit in. It's in high school where she also met her future husband, Steve Downs. Steve actually lived across the street. Steve always put Diane first, and this was important to her, as you'll see later on. She always craved attention. Steve was different from her family. He was sort of a rebel, and this made him that much more attractive to Diane. After high school, Steve joined the Navy. Diane attended the Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College in Orange, California. The college is now known as Heartland Baptist Bible College, and operates out of Oklahoma. However, Diane was expelled after one year for promiscuous behavior. Now, I wanted to look into this a little bit. I found a recent catalog online for the school. It lists its key distinctives as strong belief in and teaching of the KJV Bible, which is the King James Version Bible. This is the English translation of the Bible containing both Old and New Testament, completed in 1611. The key distinctives also include firm Baptist distinctives and history taught, local Baptist church involvement, and soul-winning emphasis. That's right, folks. Soul-winning. Curious as to what that means? Well, I was too, so I looked it up. And what a rabbit hole. But basically, it's bringing lost sinners to Christ for salvation. Think it sounds super weird? Well, it's actually in the Bible. Proverb 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. He that winneth souls is wise. I mean, it's definitely not a new concept and probably makes people understand preachers a little better. To them, it's not always just about preaching the word of God to people who want to hear it. 
but in their minds, they're also trying to save souls. The remaining distinctives include enthusiastic spirit among student body and dedicated faculty and staff. Well, I guess that the enthusiastic spirit among student body didn't mean enthusiastic spirits among each other's students' bodies. What? Guess Diane got that one wrong. I mean, no shame for me. You do you, girl. But I'm not surprised that promiscuous behavior is frowned upon at a Baptist Bible college. Their catalog states, Christian education includes not only practical training and learning, but also training that encourages the development of godly character, Christ-likeness, and spiritual maturity. You actually cannot get a degree from Heartland Baptist Bible College because they are not accredited by the Oklahoma State Board of Regents. You can only get a diploma. Lastly, the catalog states, we believe that God has commanded that no sexual activity should be engaged in outside of one man, one woman marriage. We believe that any form of adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, pedophilia, bisexuality, bestiality, incest, or pornography are sinful perversions of God's gift of sex and design for mankind. So, yeah, according to this handbook... Diane's promiscuous behavior would have most definitely gotten her kicked out, and now I know what college I never want to attend. So Bible College was out for Diane, and honestly, considering her crimes, I'm surprised she would have ever attended a Bible College in the first place, but she did. Yes, she missed the Ten Commandments Day and the lesson on Thou Shall Not Commit Murder. After expulsion, she returned home to Arizona to live with her parents. She ran away and married Steve Downs on November 13, 1973. They had their first child, Christy, in 1974. Steve didn't really want children, and it caused a strain on their relationship. Diane had actually stopped taking her birth control without telling Steve. Neither of them at the time had very good jobs, so Steve was stressed out about the thought of having a child and what that would do to their finances. In 1976, their second child, Cheryl, was born. And three years later, in 1979, their third child, Stephen Daniel, known as Danny, was born. Steve thought Danny was the result of an affair. Diane and Steve's marriage began to sour. Allegedly, this was due to her infidelities. The couple divorced in 1980. Diane also mothered a child through surrogacy. She really enjoyed being pregnant and how people treated her when she was pregnant. And as you'll learn later on, she constantly craved attention. So, Diane didn't really mind carrying children. It was the caring for them that seemed to be a problem for her. At one point, Cheryl, her middle daughter, had told her grandparents' neighbor that she was fearful and afraid of her mother. Diane had claimed to have been abused by her father when she was younger. Both of her parents denied that it had ever happened, 
but Diane had given very detailed accounts of abuse. But she was also known to be quite a storyteller. Diane eventually recanted her statements. At the time of the murders, Diane was a 27-year-old mother who had just moved to Springfield, Oregon from Chandler, Arizona. She moved with her three children, Christy, who was eight, Cheryl, who was seven, and Danny, who was three. Diane worked as a postal worker, so she had herself what I like to call one of them good government jobs. A little background about Springfield, Oregon. It is the sister city to Eugene, Oregon. Anne Rule has an interesting description of the two cities in her book, Small Sacrifices. I don't have the exact quote, but it's basically that Eugene is the successful, prettier sister, while Springfield is the sister that never graduated high school. Springfield was about half of Eugene's size, a smaller community where most people knew each other. On the day of May 19, 1983, Diane took her children to see a woman that she knew. She left at 9.30 at night, leaving from her friend's house. On the way home, Diane takes a detour to do some sightseeing. Well, unless you're trying to look at city lights, what kind of sightseeing would someone be doing so late at night? It's kind of like Josh Powell taking his kids camping in the middle of the night. Just don't do it. Anyway, Diane says a man flags her car down. The children are asleep in the back seat, so Diane pulls over to ask this man what's wrong. This is kind of the second red flag to me. I understand wanting to help people, but stopping on a desolate road in the middle of the night with your three sleeping children in the back seat? Nope, it just doesn't seem safe. Even in 1983, I don't think people would have so easily stopped for something like that. The man wanted her car, demanded her keys. When she tells him that he's got to be kidding, he pushes her aside and begins to shoot the three kids. One of the last bullets grazed her left arm. Diane said she then pretended to throw her keys into the bushes, and while he was distracted, she jumped in the car and drove away. I always kind of wondered how that would have worked out. Like, did she actually throw something into the bushes, or did she just, like, fake throw her keys and you thought she threw them? Because, like, what is this guy, like, my dog, and I can trick him that I threw his ball, but I didn't actually throw the ball, and I have it hidden behind me. It's going to take him ten minutes to figure it out. I mean, people are dumb, but I don't think they're that dumb. Diane tends to her own arm, wrapping it in a towel, and drives herself and her three children to the hospital. I should note that the children's wounds were not tended to. Cheryl had died from her wounds, while Christy and Danny were both badly wounded. I can't imagine what it would have been like for the ER staff that night. Those poor sweet children, all bloody, one of them dead, and then their mother who was also shot. One of the ER doctors said that when he first saw Christy, he thought she was dead. While the doctors rushed to save the remaining children's lives, the police interview Diane. The lead detective describes her demeanor as flat and noted that she wasn't crying. 
not even a single tear, even though she knew Cheryl was dead. Now, I understand that shock always kind of plays a big factor in people's reactions in situations like this, but for not even a single tear, that's kind of telling. Even the ER doctor noted in a 2020 episode that after he finished tending to Christy and he went to speak to Diane, she was completely emotionless, not a tear in her eye. So now this is the second person who's noting that she wasn't crying, she, not even a tear. And that's weird. That's definitely weird. But people handle situations in all sorts of ways. Diane said to the doctor, I really ruined my new car. I got blood all over the back of it. That seems like a really weird thing to say. Again, and you'll see this a lot as I continue the story. The things that come out of that woman's mouth, I just, I can't. <laughs> I, like, I don't even know. You know, when you ask your dog if he wants a treat and, and his head turns, like, huh? Yeah, well, that's how I feel when I watch some of her interviews, like, huh? Did she really just say that? A fear sweeps over Oregon. There's a crazy man on the loose who had killed a child and tried to kill two others and their mother. People didn't feel safe. Mothers were afraid to go out in the evening, and children just weren't allowed out. There wasn't a suspect or a weapon. They did, however, have shell casings. A composite sketch was drawn and blasted across every news station. Diane Downs had described the man as having shaggy hair. You know, it's interesting because the first time I saw the suspect sketch, I actually thought it kind of looked like Diane Downs, but with slightly more masculine facial features. I'm interested to know if anyone else has thought the same. The cops trying to get this case solved, decide to do a reenactment to try and get a better understanding of what happened. And the video of this is almost sickening. Diane Downs is basically prancing around and making jokes. It's like she was being filmed for a TV show. It's certainly not what you would expect from a grieving mother. Again, I know people grieve differently and there's different stages, but this is not that. And you have to see some of the interviews with her. It'll make your skin crawl. She states in one, But at night, when I close my eyes, I can see Christy reaching her hands out to me while I'm driving. That haunts me the most. A few seconds pass and then she smiles. Now, I know some people will nervous laugh in an awkward or stressful situation, but this isn't that. There's almost something evil there. Here you have her two children, Danny, who is now paralyzed from the waist down, and Christy, who's recovering from a stroke, both still in the hospital, and Diane is chasing down reporters, doing interviews in full hair and makeup, Having seen some of these interviews before, when Chris Watts was on TV and he was talking about his missing wife, Shanann, and their daughters, Cece and Bella, I didn't buy his story for a second. I thought immediately of Diane Downs and her interviews. 
So when the story broke that he was responsible, I just, I knew it right away. And I try not to be that person that just judges someone right off the bat. But sometimes with these cases, you just have that feeling. At this point, and for obvious good reason, people are starting to get suspicious. Things just don't seem to be adding up. The performance Diane puts on as a reenactment of what happened is absolutely jaw-dropping. The interviews just get worse. Diane, at this point, is really digging herself into a hole. She does this interview where she talks about Christy reaching out, describing the blood coming from her mouth, and she's literally laughing while she's saying it. She can't keep a straight face. She brings up how people have told her how lucky she is to be alive, and she says she doesn't feel very lucky, that she couldn't tie her shoes for two months. She then says that her kids are the lucky ones because if she had been shot as badly as they were, they would all be dead. Yeah, I'm sure that her paralyzed son and her daughter, who's recovering from a stroke, feel pretty lucky. I mean, she's absolutely delusional. It's becoming apparent through her interviews that she doesn't want the publicity for her children, that she wants the publicity for herself. She's sending up red flags at an alarming rate. Reporters are beginning to wonder if she herself may be a suspect. Her own father questions whether or not she's telling the truth. I think that when your own family is questioning your story and your actions, there's something more there. Because no one wants to ever question that their child could be capable of such a horrific thing. Diane knows people are questioning her possible involvement. She even says in an interview, If I had shot my own children, would I not have done a good job of it? I think she sort of expects this to play in her favor, but it really doesn't. It's really the last thing someone should say if they're trying to claim their innocence. And then the news comes out that Diane Downs is pregnant again. She claims to have gotten pregnant because she missed Cheryl, Christy, and Danny. After the shooting, the children weren't placed in their mother's custody. In the interview, she talks about how you can't replace children, but you can replace the effect they give you. She then says how children are so easy to conceive. Now... I understand that everyone grieves differently, as I've already said, but it doesn't seem like having a baby so close to this tragedy would be something most people would be trying to do. So who was the dad? Well, Diane had picked an attractive man from her mail route. One night she just showed up with some weed and whiskey knowing full well that she was ovulating and had sex with this man, and then boom, she was pregnant. And this man obviously had no idea what he was getting himself into. So the police now know that things don't add up. While Diane is doing her interviews, getting pregnant, and continuing on like none of this really happened, the police are busy gathering evidence. Blood spatter experts noted a blood spatter pattern 
on the outside of the vehicle that was inconsistent with the story that the children were all shot inside the car. Police believe that Cheryl was able to open the door, fell out of the car, and then was shot a second time. And that would explain the blood spatter on the outside of the car. Diane lied to police, saying she didn't have a gun, but she in fact had a twenty-two caliber pistol, the same caliber that the children were shot with. When they searched her home, they found a rifle that had twenty-two caliber shells that had been fired from another gun. After comparing the shells to the ones found at the crime scene, they were a match. Another incriminating thing was a witness. He stated that he had come up behind Diane while she was racing to the hospital. But she wasn't racing. She was driving so slow that the speed didn't even register on the speedometer. So there was no racing to the hospital. Instead, she was going slow, probably hoping her other kids would die on the way there. Now with enough evidence that points to Diane, police begin to wonder what her motive was. When police searched Diane's apartment, they found a diary, which is basically letters to a man named Robert Knickerbocker, whom people called Nick. This was a co-worker that Diane had fallen for, but judging by the journals, it seemed like much more of an obsession. Nick was a co-worker from Chandler, Arizona. Although he was married, he had been separated from his wife, Charlene. Diane believed that Nick would move to Oregon with her, but he was so happy that she left and had zero intentions of following her. Nick didn't want to be a father, so Diane blamed her children. Her children stood in the way of her one true love, and then suddenly... Diane's story changes again. Now, there's two suspects who were there the night her daughter was killed and her other children were shot. And they say her name, and they know her, and they know her tattoo. And it wasn't like Diane was adding details to her story. This was a completely different story. Diane says she didn't do anything wrong and that she wouldn't change it if she could. Um... Excuse me? One of your children is dead. One is paralyzed. The other has had a stroke. And you wouldn't change anything? You wouldn't have just taken a different road if you could? Okay, lady. You're not helping your case. She thought she was smarter than the cops. And she even tells them to fuck off. And that they can spend the next 20,000 years trying to find the guy who did this. Diane is now beyond frustrated, which is really what the detectives were trying to do. She's not laughing anymore. She tells police she knows who did it, knows the man, knows his name, and then she storms out of the office. However, police do not make an arrest right away. Despite tremendous amounts of public pressure, Instead, the DA was waiting for the surviving witness, her daughter Christy, to tell them what really happened. Due to her stroke, Christy couldn't speak, and when she could speak, she was afraid to tell people what actually happened. A therapist asked her to write down the name of the person who shot her, 
telling her that they can just toss it in the fireplace. They do this over and over, and eventually, when she's ready to share the name, the piece of paper says, My mom. As soon as Diane was indicted, they made an arrest on February 28, 1984. Even in her mug shot, she doesn't look upset. Like, honestly, you could call it a smug shot because she looks so smug. Diane was charged with one count of murder and two counts of attempted murder and criminal assault. Downs was found guilty on all charges. She was sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years, having to serve 25 years before even being considered for parole. But her story doesn't stop there. Diane's surviving children, Christy and Danny, actually went to live with the lead prosecutor on the case, and in 1986, they were adopted by Fred and his wife, Joanne. Diane gave birth to another daughter a month after her trial. She named her Amy Elizabeth, but the baby was seized by the state of Oregon and adopted, and then her name was changed to Rebecca. On July 11, 1987, Diane escapes from prison. Imagine the people in the Salem area were worried about their children with her on the loose. She was recaptured 10 days later on July 21st, only a few blocks from the prison. This little vacation of hers caused her an additional five years on her sentence. After her escape, she was transferred to a prison in New Jersey. When Diane escaped, the prosecutor who had adopted Christy and Danny had only lived 66 miles away from the prison that was located in Salem. It was at his request that she was transferred to New Jersey, because during her escape, he was extremely fearful that she would try to travel to where he lived. In 1994, Downs was then transferred to a prison in California, and since then she's moved around to various California prisons. Her first chance at parole was 2008. She was denied. Based on the laws at the time of her incarceration, she would have a chance at parole every two years. In 2010, she was denied parole again. A new law took effect that made it so Diane would not, again, be eligible for parole until 2020. I obviously cannot speak for the judge, but I would be very surprised if she ever is granted parole. So, happy Mother's Day to everyone but Diane Downs. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Crime Shark. I'm really trying to get on a schedule of releasing episodes more regularly. Obviously, I'd like to release one every week, but life happens. Things have been kind of busy at work lately. Lots of spreadsheets and data analysis, so sometimes when I come home, I'm not exactly in the mood for research. Anyway, I want to give a shout-out to Devil We Know Podcast. Aaron is a great guy. He's another solo podcaster that I really admire. He recently did an episode on Annie Ripple from Batavia, which I'd actually written a little article on for the A Case A Day series on James Renner's The Philosophy of Crime blog. 
Just a reminder that season two of The Philosophy of Crime is out now, and you can binge the entire thing. You can also check out James's new book, Muse. If you have a case that you would like to see covered, or one that you've done a write-up for, please email Naptime Nancy with your suggestions or articles for the A Case A Day series. She can be reached at naptimenancy at gmail.com. We would absolutely love to have your submission. Thanks again, and I'll see you later.